let's continue our study this morning in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be in chapter 2. And last week, we, we spent time looking at a flashback. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2 reminded us of our own spiritual bankruptcy. You know, we, we come out of this, this chapter 1 and like we're on the heights of heights. And then Paul says, well, to really appreciate that, let me take you backwards in time. Let me describe to you what you did not have, where God brought you from. You know, one of the things I think if, if Paul set the stage effectively last week, and if I was able to communicate that, each one of us should say, you know what? Unbelievers don't need to be a little bit more righteous. Unbelievers don't need to sin less. Unbelievers don't need to be a little less dead. They need spiritual life. That's what they need. And see, religion misses this, doesn't it? Religion just totally misses this point because they think if you're a little bit more righteous and a little less sinful, God will accept you. They miss the boat. They, they're not even at the dock. They're not even at the right zip code by the water. It, like they, religion, owns, religion owns oceanfront property in Arizona, okay? That's, that's what religion owns. They, they totally miss the point. And this is what we're going to see here is that it was a dark, despicable, uh, unmanageable uh, position that we were in before we were saved. But then Paul introduces an absolute game changer in verse 4. He totally flips the table upside down. And it's found in two words, verse 4, but God. And apart from these two words, apart from God interjecting himself into this situation, nobody goes to heaven. I, I should repeat that. Even your grandmother that smells like chocolate chip cookies, she does not go to heaven. Nobody goes to heaven. But God. God did something incredible here. And let's read the verse. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so he introduces this section and thank, <laughs> thank the Lord, Paul makes a contrast now because it was getting depressing last week. You're walking according to this world, this age. You're walking according to Satan. You're fulfilling the desires of the flesh. You're by nature children of wrath. And it's like, oh, puke, I got to get out of this. Like, I don't even want to hear this anymore. Thankfully, Paul contrasted here. He, he puts a but God in there. In fact, he spent like three verses burying each one of us in this sordid, dirty, despicable ugly past, not only in actions, we all understand that we've done sinful things before we got saved, but did we know that by nature we were condemned as well? That by nature we were entirely offensive to a holy God? Now that's not a, a positive message. It's not a feel-good message, but you know what? It's the truth. That's, that's what the word of God says. He, he paints this picture for a reason. And so after introducing this wretched and hopeless state of mankind, he introduces what I would call an explosion of hope. It, it just explodes off the page at you. It's like a color infusion. It's like somebody who's on the table, the, the heartbeat has stopped and then boom, they, they hit a little bump. You're like, ah, I got hope. Maybe, maybe this person's going to snap out of it. This is what Paul introduces. And you know what's so crazy 
is Paul doesn't even get to what God did for another verse because he first is distracted by God, who God is. This is the thing we've got to understand. Uh, It's great to emphasize what God did. That is a lot of fun. But don't ever forget the fact of who God is. Don't forget who he is by character, by nature. This explains why he does what he does. And we're going to see that first. And in fact, that first description, it says that God is rich in mercy. We see that in verse 4. Notice, first of all, the text says that God is rich in mercy, not that he was rich in mercy or that he will be rich in mercy, but that he is. This is who God is. This is by nature. You know, we talk about fathers, and and there were times that my dad growing up was merciful to me. But you know what? There are times he wasn't. (laughs) I, I got exactly what I deserved. I got exactly what he told me I would get if I did X, Y, Z, and then I went out and did X, Y, Z, and then I got what I deserved. And it's always in those moments you're hoping for mercy to kick in, right? You're, you're hoping not to get what you deserve. Well, God is rich in mercy. He doesn't just do it once in a while. He doesn't just give you mercy when the Dallas Cowboys won on Sunday. You know, like that's, I, I knew if the Cowboys won, man, I was home free for that day at least, right? It was, it was a quiet day in our house if the Dallas Cowboys won. But God is not just merciful once in a while. He is by very nature, by very character. He is mercy. He is merciful. Mercy means compassion. It means active pity. It carries the idea of showing compassion when something other than compassion is deserved. And if, and if we need a picture of this, think about somebody you know who's down on their luck and they're down on their luck because of the choices that they've made. Really hard to have compassion for somebody like that. I hate to admit, but when I drive around town, I see someone begging at a streetlight. Oftentimes my mind wanders directly. I wonder what decisions got them there. It's not mercy. Oftentimes that's not my natural response. So God's character is one of active pity, active compassion. Yes, you were in a dark, despicable, dirty past. Yes, you've done things that offend my very character. Yes, you were born in contrast, separated from me, dead in trespasses and sins. But you know what? My heart yearns to do something for you. That's who he is by nature. And so one of the things that mercy is is awesome. It's this character quality that guilty people most appreciate when someone who has authority over them, someone who can execute justice or discipline when they exercise. That's what we want. Think about it. Teachers, bosses, judges, you want mercy when you've done something wrong. You want want them not to give you what you deserve. You want to finally get to the front of the, the Department of Motor Vehicles line and you left a piece of paper and they said, don't worry about it. Just when you get it, bring it right back up. In fact, we'll just let you do it without that piece of paper. Now, that never works at the Department of Motor Vehicles. So typically, they're like, go home and get it. And then, can I come back to the front? Nope, you got to get a, a number again, and you're in the back of the line. That's not mercy. We want mercy every time we mess up. You know, I remember, and I heard this, and I, I used to hear it on TV, but then I heard it in my own home. And it was, you know, the point in time when a mom, her spankings just don't work the way they used to, to work. And, and I remember my mom, I remember visually, I was watching my brother get spanked. I actually wasn't getting spanked on this one, but I was watching my brother get spanked and she took a ruler and she smacked him on the rear end and it snapped in half. And he didn't even cry. 
And she just started laughing. She's like, I guess I'm out of, I'm out of my league now. I can't, I can't discipline you guys anymore. So then the worst phrase ever invented in human history was introduced. It was just wait till your dad gets home. So, so I got one of those. I got one of the, oh, I got multiple of those. But, I, but one time in particular, I had done something very egregious. And I don't remember what it is. Thank the Lord. Um, but it, it was something bad. And I got just wait till your dad gets home. And, and it was the one time, and here's what's really, well, I'll tell you what's really funny about it in a second, but I put on every pair of underwear that I owned in my drawers, underneath my pants, and I was ready. I was waiting for them, but in the back of my mind, I still hoped what? Maybe my dad would say, oh, it's not that bad. I'm not going to spank you. I was looking for mercy. What's really funny is years later, As I'm now the dad coming home to spank, one of my own kids pulled the same trick on me. And I gave him mercy because I was laughing so hard that this got replayed on me. But you know, we want mercy when we've made a mistake. We want mercy when we don't deserve mercy. That's the whole nature of mercy. And one of the things that we see about the gospel, about Jesus dying for us and rising again, is that mercy and justice meet. You say, how can that happen? Right? Because mercy means you don't get what you deserve. You, you avoid justice. So how can mercy and justice actually meet? Well, the good news about what God has done is he is rich in mercy and he never miscarries justice at the same time. And you know, here's the deal. His mercy, which was extended because of his love, this is the motivation we're going to see in verse 4 was manifested in a savior who took your just penalty, justice executed on him so that God could extend mercy to you. He gave Jesus what you deserved so that he could give you what you don't deserve. That is the message of the gospel. Mercy, as one commentator said, this is where mercy and justice kissed. They came together. Mercy and justice typically don't come together. And this is what religion always misses as well. They emphasize one to the detriment of the other, but at the cross, they kissed, they met perfectly. God completely merciful, showing pity and compassion, desiring not to give us what we deserve, gave his dearly beloved son what we deserved. And his justice was never miscarried in the gospel. And not only did God, is God merciful, but the text tells us more. Look at the superlative. He's rich in mercy. He, he didn't just, oh, let me, get a, let me get you. You know, sometimes as a dad, you're like, oh, yeah, let me get you a quarter here. Let's see if I can find a quarter. He's not scrounging change. God's not digging through the sofas of heaven looking on how to, how to extend his mercy. He is rich in mercy. He's overflowing with mercy. He's overflowing with wealth. And this is why as we get into what God did, we need to understand the motivation behind what God did. And mercy is one of those. Now, why is he merciful? Well, it's because he loved us. How do do you love someone that's dirty, dark, despicable, anti-you in every way? And I remember uh, middle school. You know which girls I liked in middle school? I only liked the girls that liked me first. Because it was safe, right? I'm not going to go out on a limb and ask anyone out and have suffer that rejection, right? And, and oftentimes, that's how we live life. We only like people that we know like us. And if we know someone doesn't like us, someone's against us, we find everything wrong with that person that we can find for reasons not to like them. 
Am I telling the truth? I mean, is that, isn't that how we naturally think? Praise God, he's not that way. He loved you even when you were unsaved. He loved you so much that he wanted to demonstrate that love for you. And it wasn't like he just felt loving to you when you were not quite as dirty. That means in every aspect of you living your life prior to believing the gospel, God loved you. Everything he did toward you was an act motivated by his love. Man, that ought to just blow us away. This is why when we get into chapter three, Paul's gonna pray. He's gonna pray for the believers. I want you to understand the love of God because if you understand the love of God, your life will never be the same again. That's a summary. There's a lot more detail there. But the love of God, understanding this is so incredible. This is the cause of his mercy. This is the reason God is rich in mercy. And this is the reason God did what he did is because of the greatness of his love. We're gonna see what he did here in a few verses. The word great means high on a scale of extent. It means extensive quantity. Not, I mean, it's quality too, but it's quantity. There's a lot of it. This is what he's talking about, this great love. And it motivated the exercise of God's mercy towards people who only deserved justice. And this is one of the things we made comments on last week, and it's probably good to bring it up again. When you were unsaved, you were not almost to the finish line where Jesus just bumped you across. That, that was not true of you. You weren't even close to the finish line. I was not even close to the finish line. I don't care who you were. I don't care what kind of moral life you lived. I don't care if you came home. Every time your parents gave a curfew, you were there 15 minutes earlier. You never drank. You never smoked. You never went to the bar. You never went to a club. I, none of that even matters in the sense of your standing before God. Because you lacked a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. So it wasn't like you were more lovable than the next person. And I think oftentimes as former unbelievers, we think, yeah, I wasn't that bad. You know, I, I, was, I was definitely more lovable than that guy in my class. I mean, he was crazy. I don't know how God could love someone like that. Well, vice versa. <laughs> I mean, the same could be said of you. I don't know how God could love you. And some people can... Amen, sister. And, and some people could say that, like, I don't know how God could love John Clark. You know, I think, I literally think if some people I went to high school with found out I was a pastor, they might die of a heart attack laughing so hard. I don't think they would believe it. They said, how could that guy be a pastor? I'm serious. Like, this is how bad it was. And yet, God in his love, he, he just loved through it. You know, the, one of the best pictures of, of this kind of love, I think, is moms. Because moms can look at a terrible piece of artwork from a little child and be like, boom, right up on the refrigerator. I'm going to put this up on Facebook. Look how talented my kid is. Everyone else is like, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. Maybe the next Picasso, you know, like it's, it's that bad. Um, and moms just love kids through it, right? Kids can come in dirty. Kids, I mean, I remember there were some pretty raunchy diapers rolling through my house at certain times of our existence. And I was like, go see your mom. It's like, I, I couldn't even stomach it. You know, I was about to puke a couple times. And, and, but moms just dive right in there and take it. Man, that's the love of God. It's just a good picture of the love of God. And only that, as I mentioned, Romans 5, 8, this is what I love about God's love. He, he's not like the person says, I love you and then never does anything for you. 
You, you have people like that in your life? Oh, I love you. I care about you. I've been thinking about you. I've been doing this. And you're like, man, they, I don't think they have. God loves and he acts. God loves and he puts a face on it. Romans 5.8 tells us the action and the face on God's love. The face is that of Jesus Christ. And the action is he died for you. Romans 5.8, right? The, God demonstrated, showed us, pointed out his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, not after we promised to clean ourselves up, not after we promised to quit going over there and start going over there and doing this and stop doing this, while we were still sinners, Christ did what for you? He died for you. He didn't wag his finger at you. He didn't say, you better get off. You better stop that. You better knock that off if you're ever going to have a place in my home. No, he died for you. He suffered the penalty that you and I deserve. That is the love of God demonstrated. And you know, we still have one more phrase that kind of leads up to God's action that we need to consider. And that's found in verse five. It's that very first phrase, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And I love that phrase, even when, even when the obstacles were against you, even when you were dead in trespasses and sins, even when you were obedient and allegiant to God's enemy, even when you were the most despicable anti-God person on the planet, God did something. God acted. God provided something. We're going to look at that in more detail. You know, many of us have no idea the type of precarious and dangerous situation we were in before we got saved. We walked around this world just thinking if we were good boys and good girls and we quit doing this and we started going to church more and that God would be forced to accept us. That that God in some way would have to accept us because we tried and we made an effort not to kill people or steal from people or lie to people. Thus, we must qualify for heaven. And you know, this picture right here represents the type of precarious situation each one of us is in before we were saved. You know, people do this for a living. They walk up there and they take selfies on top of these buildings. I mean, oh, I almost can't even look at that without getting sick to my stomach. Not realize, I mean, I think they realize, but the precarious situation, one slip, the wind picks up, blows you off, and we don't understand that was the state we were in before we were saved. Big trouble. Dead in trespasses and sins. It was mentioned earlier in verse one. It's described in more detail in verses two and three. And so when we talk about being dead in trespasses and sins, we're talking about spiritual death. And remember, death by definition means what? Separated separation. What were we separated from? We were separated from God who is spiritual life. That is why we're called spiritually dead. We're separated from God, not just by actions we looked at last week, but by nature himself. This is why David says, I think it's in Psalm 51, five, behold, I was born in iniquity, right? That's, that's the key. It happens at our physical birth. We're born spiritually dead. Now, after all this lead up now, we finally get to what God did. We've looked at his character. We looked at where we've come from. And now we get to look at what God has did and uh, has done. And, and before we do, I want you really quickly, let's uh, put, put your nose in, in the Bible real quick. Verse five, let's look at verses five and six. I want you to notice all the union words, union, like connection with Christ here. Notice all the union words. Verse five, even when we were dead in trespasses, 
uh, trespasses. He made us, notice this, alive together with. Together with. Who? Christ. Look at verse 6. And he raised us up together. Together with who? Christ. By context. And made us sit together. With who? Christ, by context. In fact, look, he goes on with another connection word. He made us sit together in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. As if we haven't heard that phrase enough by this time in the study of Ephesians. This is where you were joined with Christ. You were placed in him. You were connected with him, never to be severed again because Jesus Christ never dies again. You never die again. You will never be separated from the life of Jesus Christ. This is so important to understand because this is what had to happen based on our original state. This is what had to happen based on our bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy that we've been looking at. And so we see this first action that God made us alive together with Christ. It means us to live again uh, together with others. The, 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 there's a Greek preposition soon that's in all of these words. It means together with. So he made us alive, but he did it with Christ, together with Christ. There's a connection to Jesus Christ here and the way that he made you alive. He, again, I, I've said this before, but he didn't just deal out eternal life as, in, as like a playing card. Here you go. Here's a gift. No, he gave you the son. He, he connected you to the son. You are connected to Jesus Christ the moment you put your faith in his death for you and his resurrection. You're connected to the Son, and then what's true of Jesus becomes true of you. Is Jesus alive to God? He's alive to God, so you're alive to God. Is Jesus raised? Yes. So guess what? You are raised spiritually. We'll look at that in a second, but you will also be raised physically one day because Jesus was. And you know what? Where's Jesus right now? Well, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Guess where you're sitting? Sitting. Don't tell me in the fourth pew in Grace Community Fellowship. That may be true physically, but you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. I just want you to, t- I just want you to think about that. As, it, as the Godhead interacts in heaven, and I may be overstating this a little bit, but, but bear with me in terms of a visual. That means that every time God the Father looks to his right hand and smiles at Jesus Christ, he's smiling at you. That's where you are seated. You are so inextricably connected to Jesus Christ. And does it make sense why you can't lose your salvation? God has done stuff that we don't even know about to connect you to Jesus Christ, to guarantee eternal life, so that you is not based on your behavior or performance. It's based on the one who died for you and rose again. And you know what? He's never going to mess it up. (laughs) You will mess it up. I will mess it up. He will never mess it up. And praise God, your salvation, your life is all dependent upon him what he's done, what he's accomplished, what he continues to do on your behalf while in heaven, Jesus Christ interceding for you. And you know what? He's going to come back for you one day. And he's going to, he's preparing a place for you. And there you will be with him always is what he says. So all of these beautiful things we see in this, God is the one at a moment in time, he enlivened you. He gave you spiritual life. He connected you to Jesus Christ. When did it happen? It happened the moment we believe the gospel. You know, John 5.24 says this, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life. And notice this phrase, shall not come into judgment. 
wait a minute, is God ceasing to be just here? No, God is just. Mercy and justice kissed on the cross. You're not going to receive judgment because Jesus received it for you. That's why you're never going to face judgment. And then guess what? Notice that next phrase, has passed from death unto life. See that? It goes right with Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 that we're looking at. We were spiritually dead when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are now spiritually alive. Believers' spiritual life and enlivening moment oftentimes is called regeneration or being born again. Again, it's always connected to the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we cannot escape from this passage, nor do we want to escape from this passage. By the way, Jesus gives eternal life. That's what John 10, 28 says. But the reason he gives it is because he is the eternal life. I love that distinction. Let's pick it up. It's not that Jesus has eternal life to give. He does. It's not that Jesus can give eternal life. He can, and he does. But the point is, Jesus himself is eternal life. Let's go to 1 John. Hold your finger there in Ephesians. We'll come right back. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1. As you're turning there, John 1, 4 says what? In him is life. In him, in Christ is life. But notice how John words this. It's really, it's really kind of an odd wording, honestly. <laughs> But, it, but it's, a, it's a great wording because it gives us this distinction. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Notice this. The life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. Who's he talking about there? Who's the life? It's Jesus Christ. Who's that life? Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that, that in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, eternal life is inextricably tied to a person. This is why these connection words are so important. And go back with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. And oh, by the way, <laughs> I love how the translator put this in parentheses. It's like, oh, by the way. <laughs> it's not an oh, by the way. This is, this is rich. You didn't deserve it. You and I didn't deserve to be made alive with Christ. You didn't do anything to earn, deserve, merit. One movement of God toward you to accomplish this for you. It was all by grace. You know, that's the contrast between mercy and grace. Mercy uh, is also motivated by God's love. But not only did we not get what we deserve, that's mercy, not getting what you deserve. That's, that's coming home and dad says, uh, you know, your mom says, wait till your dad gets home. And dad comes home and says, you know what? I had a great day at work. I got a raise. I know you did something wrong, but, you know, let's just tell your mom I spanked you. I'm not going to do it. That's mercy. But then if he goes in and says, I'm not going to spank you and we're going to go out for ice cream, that's grace. <laughs> you did not deserve something good. You deserve something bad. But not only did you not get something bad, mercy, but then you got something good, ice cream, grace. That's the contrast between the two words. Grace, we get something we do not deserve. How do you get it? It's because you are connected to Jesus Christ. It's the only way you get it. That's that's why you get something you don't deserve. And you're like, well, that's not fair. Or, or that, you're right, by the way, it's not fair. <laughs> you 
Because if God was fair in this situation, we'd all go to hell. That's because fairness and justice means you get what you deserve. And we know from the scriptures, the wages of sin is death. If we got what we earned, if we got what we deserve, we deserve death and hell. But praise God, he's not fair in the area of salvation. He's gracious in the area of salvation. And when we look at this word save, you know, the word itself, we always talk about we need to, when we find this word in the scriptures, we want to determine what it means from the context. Okay, so we want to do that here as we're working through. But the word itself means to deliver, to make whole, to preserve safe from danger, loss, or destruction. The same word is used to be saved physically, like you're, you're losing your life. You know, Peter, when he's walking on water and he begins to sink and he says, Lord, save me. Peter's not talking about save me from hell. That's not what he's asking for there. What's he saying? Save me from drowning. <laughs> save my physical life. I'm about to go under. And so this word can be utilized uh, multiple different ways. The context dictates what it's talking about. And so the question is always saved from what? What are, we, what are we being saved from here? By grace, you have been saved. Saved from what? Well, contextually, it's clear that the salvation spoken of is a salvation from the consequences of being dead in trespasses and sins. God's wrath, verse three. So this is a use of salvation that means saved from hell, saved from the penalty of sin. That's what we're talking about here. Now, one of the things that's um, interesting about this word is not only have we been saved, from this consequence, which you can kind of pick up from the past tense, even in the English. But in the Greek grammar, it's a perfect tense participle. And so what that means is it emphasizes a completed event with ongoing results. It's an, I know we don't get excited about grammar much, but this is something to get excited about because what it means is not only have you been saved, but you remain saved. And by the way, it's passive. It means you don't save yourself. See, that's what religion wants you to do. Save yourself. Base it on your behavior. Try to, try to gain assurance based on your behavior. It's all about you. And salvation is all about God doing the saving. It's all reflected even in the language. But not only are you saved, but as a friend of mine in Liberia says, he keeps me saved. Not only was I saved, but he is continually keeping me saved. And that's what's reflected in this word. And so it's, again, it's, it's the way of saying that not only have you been saved from God's wrath, but you will remain saved from God's wrath. The implication is you'll never face God's wrath. That's the implication used in this word. And in case we miss it here, uh, in verse 5, we're going to get it again in verse 8. Because he uses the same exact structure in verse 8 to say, for by grace you have been saved and you remain saved and he will keep you saved. A non-literal John Clark translation, just emphasizing the thrust there. Very important to see. Now, notice this progression because it doesn't seem, uh, at least in my mind, it doesn't seem to, to follow here because he goes from being made alive with him to now being resurrected with him. It, it seems like you would resurrect and make alive maybe at the same time or resurrection would come first. But notice the way that God does this. It's just, it's just like God to do something that we don't think can be done. It's just like God to create light and then create the light bearers. <laughs> like, it's, it's like, how did God create light? Oh, he made the sun. Actually, no, he spoke light into existence and then he made the sun later. 
I just blows you away. And then here's the thing. He made you alive. Then he raised you. Then he resurrected you. He just, it, it's just incredible the way God does this. Let's look at this second action. We're moving now into verse six. He raised us up together. Again, notice that connection together. He made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so this simply means to, to raise up together. Again, it's, it's pointing to this work that's affected by our union with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And, you know, it is true that one day believers will be raised physically, and it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's part of getting eternal life. God is, his salvation package goes across the spectrum. He gets you from start to finish, right? He doesn't just save you from sin's penalty. He saves you from sin's power. And he will one day save you from sin's very presence when we get a glorified body. So very important to understand. But I believe he's actually talking about something else here. And that's our spiritual resurrection because he speaks of it as having been done. Our our physical resurrection awaits the day of the rapture, but our spiritual resurrection has already happened. And we see that there's a purpose for our spiritual resurrection. In fact, God raised believers with Christ out of their spiritual death. And in this act of spiritual resurrection, we died to sin in Christ. We died to sin as a source. Remember, Earlier in verse three, it was the lust of the flesh that were fulfilled in our life. The flesh said, jump. We said, how high? The flesh said, go over there. We said, I'll run over there. The flesh said, go do this, go do this. Now in our resurrection with Jesus Christ, we have a new relationship to sin as a source. We don't have to obey it in its lust before. When you were an unbeliever, you had to obey it. You had no other, no other option. And again, we talked last week. That doesn't mean that you were always on the licentious end of the spectrum. You could have been on the religious and moral end of the spectrum. It doesn't matter. It's the flesh just wants to distract you from Jesus Christ any way that it can. But the point is this. When we were raised with Christ, God had a purpose in this. You were, before saved, you were severed from God. You were separated from God, dead spiritually. Now that you are a believer, you have been united with God and you have been separated or severed from sin's power in your life. Look at Romans 6.4. This is just a very quick way that Paul puts this. It's so significant as it relates to our spiritual resurrection. What is God trying to accomplish by doing this? You know, is, is God just flexing and just showing us all these different things he can do? Or does he actually have a purpose behind it? Well, God can flex all he wants, and that's good. I'm impressed. But then he always has a purpose behind what he does. Look at Romans 6, 4. Why were we raised to newness of life? Why were we raised with Christ? Look at 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, notice the purpose, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And you know where we're going to get that explained more? Where God put you in a position where he severed you or separated you from sin's automatic domination in your life when we get down to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He's created you in Christ Jesus to walk those out. And now that you're free from sin, you can be influenced and controlled by him and you can actually live an acceptable life to God. That was impossible before you were saved. This is why Isaiah 64, 6 says that we were all our righteousnesses were like, what? Filthy rags, filthy rags. Why? It wasn't that you weren't nice and did good things for your neighbor. I mean, I'm sure your neighbor appreciated the things you did for them, 
But in the sight of God, it gains you no righteous standing. This is why. Because you were not connected to the right source. You were functioning out of the wrong source. Everything out of a corrupt source is unacceptable to God. This changed the game. You're now in a position where you can live a life pleasing to the Lord. Again, not accomplished through our own efforts. It's accomplished as we walk by faith and trust the Lord. Notice the third thing that God did. He, we've, we've seen that he made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up together. And now this third action, he seated us with Christ. And I love that picture because you do have the best seat in the house. <laughs> As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the best seat in the house. I love this word because it means to cause to sit down. It means <laughs> if you've ever been somewhere and they say, hey, hey, John, have a seat. Oh, hey, hey, so-and-so, have a seat in there. No, I'd rather stand. You know, people do that sometimes in meetings. They're like, well, that got tense all of a sudden. He's like, have a seat. God makes you sit down. You know what it reminds me of? It's Psalm 23. He, he makes me lie down. <laughs> he makes me rest. That's God's design for you is to seat you in Christ to, so that you and I would start living life, not looking up, but looking down rather, rather from our position in Christ. Abiding above, as, as an old author used to say, abiding, recognizing that our position is in the heavenlies in Christ and viewing life from that perspective. And it's just incredible that, that God was able to do this. In fact, notice the contrast. We're we're literally seated together with Christ in the heavenlies in God's presence versus where we were, dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 13 is going to tell us that we were afar off. And when you see that contrast, when you see what the, the but in verse four is contrasting, it is absolutely startling. Because <laughs> you're talking about the highest of highs from the lowest of lows. That's what's going on here when we look at this. You know, being separated from God with no chance of approach has now been replaced by a nearness to God that cannot be improved upon. You see the contrast that Paul just established for us? I mean, you, you can't even, you couldn't even illustrate it. It's so low to so high. It wouldn't fit on one computer. You know, we'd be flipping our phone trying to get it all on one screen. You know, how's it? I mean, you got to scroll. <laughs> I mean, it's that, it's that much of a distance between the two. It's just incredible. Again, notice again the connection to Jesus Christ, seated together with him because we've been placed in him. Now, verse four, it, it begs the question, why would God do something like this? We, we kind of got a hint in verse four because God's merciful, God loved us. I mean, we kind of got that into place. But verse seven is actually gonna give us God's end game. Why did God do this? Why did God take us from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs? What was God trying to accomplish? We've got a, a, a great key word in Bible study in verse seven. It's the word that. It gives us a purpose. It tells us why God did this. And guess what? God is engaging in a cosmic game of show and tell. That's the best way I can say. That's the best way I can put it. You know, I, I have sat through in elementary school. I have sat through some painful show and tells in my lifetime absolutely painful. Would have wanted to be anywhere else on earth than in that classroom at that time, listening to a little trinket, a girl picked up in India on the street that has no uh, meaning to my life. And for her to go on and on and on about it. And just me just dying to get out of the class. 
But this is an opportunity. This is a show and tell that we should all be putting our, our arms around. This is a show and tell that if each one of us got an opportunity to stand up here and do a show and tell, it would get synonymous. It would just be the same thing over and over and over again, and we wouldn't get tired of it. This game of show and tell. And what did God want to show? Well, let's read verse seven. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This again is our purpose clause. This gives us why God the Father united the believer with Christ. This is what was going on behind the scenes. In the ages to come, in the coming ages, that means every age of time that's passed since the apostle Paul. That means into our age. That means into the age after us. That means in, in all the ages to come, God is showing and telling something. He wants everybody to see. He wants everybody to know what he's showing. And it follows every age past our own. What does he want to show? Well, the text tells us the exceeding riches of his grace. To show means to point out, to show forth, to manifest. It it's to direct our attention to something. If God was a man, God the Father was a man and he had hands, and I know we know he's a spirit, but he would be pointing his finger at Jesus Christ. He would be directing our attention to Jesus Christ. Everything he accomplished in his grand plan to save you, that's what he would be pointing toward. That's what he's occupied with. And, and quite frankly, again, if we had the stage and we got to show and tell, why would we talk about anything else? I, I, it's so interesting. You know, the ladies um, just had a time of, of testimony uh, on Tuesday nights. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't there, but I've talked to some that had given testimonies and heard it. And I, on Jesus Christ. That is what a testimony is all about. I, I've been in testimonies where it's like people are bragging about how sinful they used to be. It's like, trust me, dude, we don't need the detail on all that. You know, it's like, that doesn't make you more holy in our eyes. Your show and tell, my show and tell, God's show and tell is Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you. That's it. This is what he wants us to see. This is what he wants us to point out. This is why Paul went back and painted the flashback that he painted so we could see how bad it was, how good it is. That's the point, so that we could see these kind of things. And, you know, show, interesting word, verb, it's in the middle voice, indicating that God did this in order that he might receive some benefit from this action. In other words, that he might receive glory. You know, God's done a lot of things where he would receive glory over the course of history. I mean, we just name, name a couple, creation, right? Power, miracles. I mean, he's done a lot of things that bring him glory. But you know that the one thing that he points to and shows and wants everybody in creation that's ever lived to see is what Jesus Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago for you on the cross. That's what he wants to show. That's what he's occupied with. You say, well, that's redundant. You know, doesn't he have a new message? No, he doesn't. This, there's no better. How, how do you improve on awesome? How do you improve on the best? You don't improve on it. You just keep talking about it. Because it's going to click and make sense to those who are hearing it, some for the first time, or having, having a, a first-time realization of the value of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. It's just incredible. So you know what? God's showing off his plan. I love it. 
Show it off more, Lord. That should be our prayer. Show it off more. Show it off in my life. Show it off in your life. Show it off in the life of our church. What else are we here for? Seriously? Build our 401k, buy boats, buy extra. I mean, what are we here for? Exactly. We're not here for anything else besides Jesus Christ. You know, that's the whole point. God's heart desire, his heart desires to show every age of humanity something so that people will say, wow, God, you are awesome. Wow, God, you're awesome. Is that your heart's cry this morning? I I hope that those that have a relationship with Jesus Christ in here are not going through a cold or stale period. You don't have to remain there. Wow, God, you are awesome. We can start right there. Wow, God, your plan is incredible. You know what? You want to show me the exceeding riches of your grace in your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus? I want to see it, Lord. Show it to me. Reveal it to me. I want to understand it in a deeper way. That could be our prayer this morning. In fact, what does he want to show you? This exceeding riches. Exceeding means to throw beyond is the idea. God's not just pulling out a $20 bill. He's got a wallet full of hundreds, right? Never ending hundreds is what he's showing us there. And again, this means that his riches or the wealth of his grace is so extraordinarily beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine. This is what Romans 5, 20 says that grace outruns sin, always superabounds over sin. And so this is the thing that he wants us to see. Not only that, but it's this perfect plan, this impeccable salvation that God has put into place. And, and, and not only that, but he's done it for undeserving sinners, not people that lined up and said, I'm giving up everything to follow you. That's not who he did it for. He did it for undeserving sinners. And then he put them in an incredible position that could never be improved upon. This is all part of what God is showing and telling. And this is why I think it's so exciting for God to, to show this off. His plan, it's just so exciting. He's worthy and deserving of our praise as a result. And then we see this reference again toward uh, his, his kindness. What is the exact and precise action that shows God's exceeding riches? Well, it's exhibited and put on full display through his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The fact that he puts you in Christ reveals his grace and his kindness. Your connection to Jesus Christ. He goes back again to this positional connected truth. Kindness, again, describes something that someone does beneficial for somebody else. That's an understatement. What God has accomplished, that's an absolute understatement. I don't think you have a word in any language that can describe the love and the kindness that he exhibited by placing us in Christ. And again, a specific outlet. Everything that he's accomplished is accomplished in Christ. You know, I'd say it this way. We could say it multiple ways. Everything that you have, everything that you are is because you have been connected to Jesus Christ. You are literally holding on to his coattails, but even better, he's holding on to you as you hold on to his coattails. That's the deal. You have, your wagon has been hitched to him. You, you have been handcuffed to Jesus Christ. You have been chained. I, whatever connection you, helps you visually, that is what's true of you. Never to be broken. And everything that you possess is found because of your connection with Jesus Christ. By the way, if we truly understand what Paul just said in verses 1 through 6, our minds should absolutely be exploding with praise. Because that's, I think, the goal of what he was trying to accomplish there. Let's close there with a word of prayer. 
Lord, our heart's desire is to see things the way that you see them. We want to see and be excited and brag and boast about the things that you brag and boast about, the way, the way that you have flexed your salvation muscles in that sense. We want to brag and boast and be excited and be occupied with those things. So Lord, guide us, change our thinking in the areas that we need to be changed in our thinking, challenge us in the areas that we need to be challenged so that you take center stage in our thinking, in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.